uh, are people back? You want to ring them in? Thank you. Hello. Okay, so Yoga Chata. So, oops. So we have this from Nagarjuna, right? And it's what it's saying is that basically karma and klesha, which are the origin of suffering, the second noble truth, standard stuff for everybody, that they come from conceptuality. Conceptuality comes from this thing called prapancha, and then prapancha is what ceases in emptiness. And so the big question is, what is prapancha? So I think we already can give one answer. What's prapancha? Prapancha is something that is necessary in order for you to conceptualize. What do you have to have in order to conceptualize? Not necessarily. We talked about it already. You need kind of you do need kind of prior experience. So you need some prior content. That might be part of prapancha. That's actually a big question. What are the things? How do you conceptualize? You take a bunch of different experiences and you identify them as the same. So you need that construction of sameness, which is an, a, a learned error, a useful error, but an error. Right? You also need the projection of, of conceptual content into the world. And why are you doing all that? Which means you're a, you think you're a, you're like an organism in here trying to m- make your way in a world out there. Which means you need subject-object duality. So you at least need those things. There are other things that will come to that you probably also need, but they were going to consider those later. But here's a quick preview. How about time and space? Okay, so anyway, so, and you could say that the reason we have the, the, the you know, the f- tendency to create patterns that don't actually exist ever, and the reason, to, and projecting out there, that those are themselves built on the duality. So you could say that the real fundamental aspect of prapancha is subject-object duality, Right? And if, and in, in particular, if that turns out to be false, meaning it's a distortion, meaning there really isn't like a, a like the kind of difference between out there and in here that that duality suggests is itself false. Then that is a man, clearly a manifestation of ignorance. So that's where that's basically where Yogacara is going. What exactly is prapancha? It's going to end up being subject-object duality. Moreover, when you're knowing emptiness, we had this yesterday, remember? Emptiness is basically that you try to find something, you try to find the essence of a thing, what it truly is, its true ultimate identity, and you can't find it. So does that mean you find a non-find? What do you find? What is that experience like? Is there something you're knowing? Yogacara is answering that question. And not only what are you experiencing, but how do you experience it? Like, how do you know that? So especially if that is a, 
if, if the emptiness is not a thing or an object, then how do you know it? Okay? Uh, and moreover, if then knowing the ultimate, knowing emptiness, is not a knowing of nothingness, then, then you know, is there something left over? So those are the kinds of questions that Yogacara is engaging with. So I'm, these are just some names and dates. And here you can see Dharmakirti and Dignaga, the Pramana guys we were talking about this morning. right? So they, they especially Dharmakirti, wrote a system, developed a system that was compatible with the existence of extramental extra matter, to use a term, Bhakyartha in Sanskrit, and with Yogacara. So he was trying to do both. Right? And these are some other... So Vasubandhu is a very important author who wrote some a number of influential texts. Siddhamati and Vinita Deva, a couple of important commentators. Okay, so one important text is this text, Distinguishing the Middle and the Extremes, which is written by a Sangha, the great, uh, uh, one of the great Yogacara philosophers. These guys are actually half-brothers. It said that their mother was a, uh, was a nun who was concerned about the decline of the Dharma. So she stopped being a nun and produced a Sangha in Vasubandhu. It's like one way to have a big impact. That's one heck of an impact, given their impact. Uh, so uh, the, And he wrote this text. Uh, they say it was transmitted to him by the future Buddha, Maitreya. So they say. So... This is, after the verses of praise and so on, this is the first verse uh, with, the, with content. And it says, the conceptual construction of the unreal exists. Duality does not exist in it, but emptiness exists in it, or you could say in relation to it. It also exists in terms of that, namely emptiness. Okay? Uh, so this is Abhuta Parikalposi Dwayam Tatra Navidyate Vijite Chunita Vijitayatra Tu Tasyam Apisavidyate, just to like have the Sanskrit. The conceptual construction of the unreal is the conception of object and subject. It's and it's actually also then the content. Right? So we're seeing objects out there, what seem to be out there, relative to subject in here, right? Emptiness is the lack of subject and object in the conceptual construction of the unreal. This is the commentary by Vasubandhu. It, the, this is his brother wrote this, it, the conceptual construction of, of the unreal, also exists in emptiness. Meaning, the, even though there, it's actually empty of subject-object construction, the the, the so some people mistakenly translate this as the unreal conceptual construction. That's wrong. You, like, you're seeing an object, right? That's happening. So the constructing is happening. The constructing with duality is happening. What's the unreal that's being referred to? What's, what's unreal is that there's an out here and an in there. Okay. Right? That's but unreal. So the construction is so there's a there appear okay so you see, you you think you see the screen, so that me and the screen seems to be out there for a subject in inside, so that's duality, 
So that experience is happening, but the duality in it isn't really there. There's, that duality is false. It's not really there. The experience is there. The duality is not actually there. It's a false distinction. Okay? In other words, if we go think of that model, the Dharmakirtian model, both the representation of the object and the representation of the subject are just consciousness itself. Right? Okay? So they look like they're different stuff, but they're not. So the conceptual construction of the unreal is non-dual? In its actual nature. But it appears dualistic. So the duality that appears in it isn't real. Doesn't actually exist there. It just appears to exist. So unreal there could be the word false? Yes, you could definitely use false for that. Abuta. Yep, definitely. Because uh, we need to know what non-dual means. Non-dual means that the subject that there that the subject object duality collapses. Either it just disappears or it ceases to appear real. It, has, it, it appears with a subject and object, yes. but it is not, that's, that appearance is false. It's, a, it's an illusion. Like you see your, your face in the mirror, and it looks like it's your face. Your face is appearing in the mirror, but that's not your face. That's a reflection. So what is real? Well, we're going to get there. Real is whatever I say it is. No. Um, uh, that's the father. You'd really be in trouble if that were the case. Uh, so, it, the conceptual and construction of the unreal, also exists in emptiness. I tried, this is a fairly literal translation. What that means is that within that absence of substance object duality, that experience is still happening. In other words, even though the subject object duality is false, that doesn't mean experience can't happen. It is happening. We know it's happening. Here it is, right now. Okay? So thus the following quote gives the correct definition of emptiness. That in which something does not exist is empty of that thing. Right? Within experience, even with content, the duality doesn't actually exist. It appears, but it doesn't actually exist. What's the experience that's being referred to? Any experience. Uh, because here, so the word conceptual maybe is, is a problem. This is called paricalpita. So you can just take conceptual away, if you like. And it's, it, what it means is that experience is paricalpita, constructed or fabricated, in the sense that there is, it, it is being constructed through a duality. Okay, and then... That duality that's appearing in it, that structure is actually not real there. It's an error, it's a defect, it's a distortion. That's not what's actually going on, that's not what's actually present. It's just appearing to you that way. Right? You take a stick and you put it in the water, it looks bent. It's not actually bent, but in your experience it looks bent. So the experience is happening, it looks dualistic, 
It's the experience, that moment of experience is actually empty of that duality. That duality doesn't actually exist there. It looks that way, but it doesn't actually exist there. Subject, object, inside, outside. But with the experience, the, the example of the bent stick, what's the subject and object? The bend in the stick uh-huh. is, the, is a metaphor for the bend in your experience, this difference in your experience. It looks like there's a difference there, between object and subject. There actually isn't. It looks like this, there's a bend in the stick. There actually isn't. Okay? We got that? So, that in which something does not exist is empty of that thing, which means that the experience is empty of the structure. It's actually empty of that structure. Knowing this one truly sees, but what remains here is real here. Knowing this, one truly knows. So this is kind of step, this is sort of saying, this is taking taking the word emptiness and using a slightly different definition, okay? One thing is this. This is a saying, this is basically saying, in some ways, going back to that verse we saw of Nagarjuna, is saying the imputation of essences, of absolute identities, is actually, that's a problem for sure. But to do that, you have to have subject-object duality. So there's a subtler version of emptiness, it's not just things don't have absolute essences, they only exist interdependently. It's actually that even experience itself is structured in such a way that it allows you to impute essences. You can only say that thing has a real essence if you have a thing to talk about. So there's a subtler distortion, which is not at the level of interpretation. It's in the perception itself. Just like the bent stick. The perception itself is distorted. Okay? Is that clear? So, ignorance is the new fundamental form of subject-object duality. Uh, Rather, the the new fundamental expression of ignorance is subject-object duality. That's really the problem. And from the standpoint of experience... It's the foundation of essentialism, right? And it's also going to be a, uh, the target of a kind of analysis, which is a relational analysis. We didn't really talk about this, but in, this is what Nagarjuna sets rolling in motion. Instead of doing reductive analysis, Nagarjuna is going to say that things only exist in relation to each other. So when you try to specify one thing in itself, you end up talking about something else. Remember that? That means that things only have relational identities. So a thing, so like the so-called supreme reason to prove emptiness in Nagarjuna's version is this thing does not have a fixed identity, essential identity, because it's relational. And that's it. Like that, you can say that about anything, according to Nagarjuna or Tsongkhapa, actually. But, and then what remains after the negation? That's going to be, well, let's find out what it is. And to do that, we're going to talk about this very fundamental kind of uh, another list which is the three natures. Okay? First nature is called the constructed nature. Parikalpata Subhava, and that was in that verse. The second nature, and this is where subject-object duality is occurring. 
It's ordinary experience. Uh, the dependent nature is the causal flow of experience itself, or the causal flow of mind. Like, I'm one moment, uh, experience is happening, right? It's looking this way. So there's an experience happening moment by moment by moment. It seems to be in a causal flow, and it's, but it's appearing with substance-object duality. Okay, And then the perfect nature is when this is experienced as empty of this. So basically, you can think of, when we talk about these three, it's really this, the causal flow of mind experienced in two ways. Experienced with ignorance, deluded, there's a real world out here and a real world in here, and a real world out there and a real self in here, or not deluded, wisdom. Experiencing, having the wisdom that sees that experience itself is empty of that duality. Okay? So that's the new definition of emptiness. So in that definition, what are you experiencing? Are you experiencing something, so to speak? It's not a thing, because if it's a thing, it's an object. But experience remains in emptiness. Right? The flow of mind... When you're experiencing the flow of mind uh, empty of duality, then you're experiencing the ultimate or the perfect nature. But that is but it, the experience itself, right? So that's why in the verse, in the verse, it's, it says, you know, that in which something does not exist is empty of that thing. You're seeing experience empty of subject out of duality. And at the same time, of course, what remains is experience itself. But now it's not experienced dualistically. Okay? All right. So, those are the, so here's an example. We've been talking about the Matrix, so let's use that example. Some of you, who's, who's not seen the movie, anyone? Oh, you've not seen the movie. Okay, so the movie The Matrix is about like this future, not that far in the future, where like the AI is taken over and they run, there's like this war and the, and the sky is, we scorch, the humans scorch the sky to try to prevent them from using solar batteries. And, you know, so instead they turn us into batteries. And the way they do that is they put us in an imaginary world that they plug, us, or plug our bodies into, and we're basically just batteries for them. Okay? It's kind of an interesting idea. It's a, you know, it's a, the first movie is good. The others, I don't know. But anyway, so... Uh, it came out at a very interesting cultural moment. So, it, so people are in a simulation, and there are, by the way, certain philosophers who very seriously think we're all in a simulation right now. Uh, I forget the name of the uh, uh, of the Swedish philosopher who's the kind of band leader of that. But you know, it's a serious argument that we're living in a simulation. But put that aside. Uh, so. When you're in the simulation, and then there's this hero played by Keanu Reeves, uh, uh, who's uh, the one, you know, his name is Neo, right? The anagram for one, right? And uh, so he has a capacity to kind of see the matrix, see through the matrix. So ordinary people, see when they're in the matrix, when they're plugged in, they just see, and these are like the AI guards who are running the place, right? So... That's, this is the constructed, right, of these three natures, 
you're seeing, you think that's the real world out there. You think that's what's going on. And then, you know, you gain your, your magical tech capacities. I don't know, like... And now this is what you see. You know that those aren't real guys. This isn't, you know, a real world. It's all just a stream, so to speak, of data that is presenting itself that you're... In your confusion, you think it's that, but it's actually this. So it's kind of a good metaphor. It worked better like 10 years ago, but... Uh, it's a good metaphor, and the, by the way, the Wachowskis very explicitly used Yoga Chata when they were uh, making the movie. But, yeah, but, uh, so it's a good metaphor for understanding this idea that we're in a kind of dream, or like a simulation. We think that, this, that the reality we're experiencing, which we've already, already established that even if we think there's matter out there, what we're actually experiencing is a kind of representation of that. Right? And if we had different kinds of senses, if we were a different kind of animal, we wouldn't see this. We'd say very differently. So our visual experience, for example, is not the real world. It's already a, a uh, representation of causal interactions. Okay? So then the next step is simply to say, well, the out-thereness, the separation, is actually itself also false. There is, that doesn't mean we're all one. It just means that that sense that I'm like in here and you're out there, that's false. That's the final place to, you know, in a sense, the subtlest place to rest my sense of being a self is just that sheer simple subjectivity. Like, well, I'm the center of my perceptual universe. And that's true because I'm an or, an, a discrete organism outside of the world. And the answer here is, nope, you're not. You're just like completely interpenetrated with the world, and that stuff and the mind stuff are all the same stuff. The question then is, well, what, what kind of stuff is that? So that's which will maybe... Okay, so... So one of the ways you need to get here, of course, is to you have, in order to get to that, you have to say, well, why would we reject the existence of matter? And there are arguments that are given to uh, suggest that matter can exist. The uh, one argument is to go through the neither one nor many argument that we use for part holes. And, to, and remember, the conclusion of that argument was that the atoms themselves, you end up with partless atoms. And it doesn't take too much to think, when you think about it, that the concept of a partless entity that, that still can somehow accumulate to make size doesn't make a lot of sense. Right? If you have a partless entity which has no size, and you pile up a bunch of partless entities, what size will it be? Yeah, no size, right? So you can step over the whole world in one step is one of the parts of the argument, right? There would be no shadows. So that whole idea like, oh, what, you know, the model of partless particles just simply doesn't make sense. That's not, we have different models now. Some of our models are more susceptible to a different kind of analysis, which is actually that the mind itself is presenting it with two-ness, but consciousness is one. So what's the warrant for saying that there's that two-ness in one? How do we know, in a sense, 
the otherness that's being attributed to what we have is just consciousness. The light is on. Subjectivity and objects. And then we have causal interactions, right? But why do those causal interactions suggest to us that that stuff, that the interactions are with something that is somehow separate from me? Right? Separate from the mind. Different thing. And the answer is because it feels that way. So it's just very similar to uh, you know, the art, why we insist on there being tableness. Built into our system, it feels so intuitively the case, even though we don't have any perceptual evidence for it, we will insist that it must be the case. We'll come up with an abstraction. right? So what, we have, what do we have perceptual evidence for? We have perceptual evidence for causal interactions. Those causal interactions, we're not saying I am those causal interactions, but what we have direct access to is consciousness itself, consciousness which is exhibiting causal interactions. That's all we have evidence for. The claim that there is something like a different kind of stuff, that this is one stuff and that's another kind of stuff, that's a metaphysical claim that isn't really based upon the experience itself. It's based upon the intuition of the duality. So So in this case then, both of these are going to collapse into something that's not... So there's mind as the opposite of matter. Both of these are going to collapse into something that unfortunately usually is called mind again, and that's an an issue. But it is neither mind as the opposite of matter nor matter as the opposite of mind. Both of those poles have to go away. Okay, so what is that stuff? We'll talk about that later. <laughs> so, and you can do a critique of relations, right, which we already went through. But there's also another argument. There's also another argument, which is an argument based upon um, uh, Akans Razor, or what's called Laguta in uh, Sanskrit, lightness, lightness of being, literally, in a way. Uh, so, Again, this, the basic idea here is if you're confronted with a, you have a bunch of empirical data and um, you know, you've got an intuition that something must be the case, but the empirical data doesn't support the existence of that thing. If I then say, well, there's a different kind of entity or there's something that exists in a different way or there's something that is trans-empirical that must exist even though I don't have any direct or indirect causal evidence for the existence of that thing. It just seems that it must, the world must work that way. Then I'm violating this principle. If I can explain things adequately, and, but I have to set aside this intuition, but I can, I can still explain things adequately, then I should set aside the intuition and not invent a metaphysical entity. So here's the question. We're, what we have in it is you, just, you have your own experience. You have things happening in the field of consciousness. They exhibit causal regularity. right? So clearly causal, some, there's some kind of causes somewhere going on. What would warrant the additional assertion that the stuff that's causing the experiences is a completely different kind of stuff than the experiences? What's the basis for that claim? Yeah, I mean, what's the, 
So there's the duality is the intuition built into the cognitive system that enables the organism to kind of you know locate itself in space time. But what's the what's the empirical evidence for that? So if I say duality, then I'm violating Occam's razor. Yes, yeah, so it, it's in practical terms, it's probably a good thing that organisms evolve this way, right? But science, so now you know, we live in a in a kind of in an age when there are many people who think that all that exists is matter. Yes. Okay. So what's the basis for that claim? What we have is we have ex, we have experience. Yeah. So certainly, sameness is involved, but. We have experience, causal regularity, and then we're going to say, and, and so we know something's causing experience, right? We know that it exhibits causal regularity. We also know that we can share, that we live, and we're going to come back to that in a second, we, you know, that we have an intersubjective shared reality, we agree on things, and so on. So that whatever is, whatever is the causal nexus that's causing our experiences, it must somehow be something that we can share, does that and so then on that basis can we then conclude that there must be matter? No. Right? It's clearly so that's actually that's probably seems to be we haven't I haven't and no one else yet has quite gotten to the point of this work with Dharmakirti, that philosopher whom I've worked a lot on. But that seems to be his basic argument. I mean there's a particular passage in which he talks about this. It's kind of like, why do you think you need matter? as the opposite of mind. Like, wh- why? Or why do you need something other than this? Yes. To say that. Yes, say that. yes. And what do you call it, mind or matter? Exactly, exactly. Why do you need something? This. We know this. There's no reason to think that, out, that yeah. there's something that's there. Yes, exactly. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Because if, once you say mind, then you're doing mind versus matter. And unfortunately, this... For various reasons, which gets corrected later, the uh, you know the tradition kind of moves toward absolutizing mind. Yogacara does, but this—if you just think about that argument for a second, like you know, especially if we put it in that way—we have experiences. They exhibit causal regularity, intersubjective shared reality, right? And we can do experiments and so on and so forth. But why is it that we think the stuff that's causing those experiences has to be a different kind of stuff than what's presented in experience? So when we, then why? When we make use of that stuff like we eat and then we survive, yes. that's just all part of the, the We seem to, yeah. So when eat. You, you, eat, you eat and you survive, right. and that, that's certainly the case, right? But all of that, all, you know all those things, or other people observe those things from the standpoint of consciousness itself, right? Right, so it could all be conscious. Like, it might not even be true. Like, it's the matrix, right? Well, I mean, it is true in the sense, it's true within the standpoint of our experience. Right, but, but more like the matrix experience yes. rather than what I think of the Yeah. So, so, so in other words, so that's where the idea of the matrix is helpful because it's like everyone's plugged in. But of course, the problem with that metaphor is you can't like the idea of being unplugged and you go to the real world. That's not good. There is no real world, so right? Another way to say it is we have this experience stuff. Yeah. That we can now, through this argument, say that probably everything that 
but we don't have minds that can conceptualize what that stuff is really like outside of our experience. And therefore, we can't really close that gap between what we experience here and what we yeah, I mean, that maybe, if I understand you, that might be a way of saying it. If we, when we are doing it from a dualistic standpoint, the whole point is that the dualistic standpoint itself drives us towards saying that's a different kind of stuff. So we would have to somehow be able to know what this kind of stuff is without knowing it from the standpoint of, uh, without the dualistic filter. And, and we'd have to be able to use a language. If we were going to describe it and tell other people about it, we'd have to use a language that wasn't dualistic. But we don't have any of that. And we make the common mistake of thinking this mind experience, if that stuff is the same, it must not be real in a way that, that we normally think of it as real. So I'm not, that I don't if, follow. If yeah. In our experience within our mind, yeah. is this sort of ephemeral stuff. Yeah. Then if we say, well, the stuff out there is the same as that, then we would make the normal fallacy to say, well, that stuff must be not really real in the way we think it is. Well, yeah. Because you know, we, yeah. you know, we think it's made up. We'll make that mistake of saying, yeah, so, this, but, this but clearly our experiences are not just made up. They're. they're constructed, like what we can observe is that we can see that even just cultural variations mean that people experience spaces in different ways, have different kinds of reports they use. They, you know, in cultures where like, you know, the Tibetans didn't have chairs. So they actually coined a word for chair when they started to interact more with Western cultures, which means, which is kupkya, which means butt lifter. Like, those poor Westerners, they have to have their butt lifted. They can't sit on the floor so long. Lift his butt up. Well, so that's so this starts to get into like very difficult territory. Like, okay, um, so why do you think there are electrons? Yes. So there's so if we're made of the same kind of stuff and we experience consciousness, does that mean yeah. that consciousness is a fundamental constituent of the universe? That's called panpsychism, yeah. and and I've actually there are some serious scientists who are now saying that. <laughs> but the points there, you won't find many people yet. Although I may know one quantum physicist who might be ready to do this to say that electrons only exist in our interactions with the world. As when we as humans, we're, yeah, when humans are trying to figure out what's going on, and they do a bunch of experiments. They f- find electrons. Like quantum theory. Yeah. 
Yes, exactly. Exactly. So, so that, so most quantum physicists, I've been a little bit involved with some of this lately, and most, most of them are not, are still very objectivist. Like, there's a real world out there. But there are a couple that are starting to, like, there are a couple of competing theories that are cubism and, uh, Ravelli's still a very objectivist, but kind of heading in that direction with his relational theory. He has a book called Helgoland, in which he has a whole like chapter on Nagarjuna. What is the name of the book? Sorry? The name of the book again? Helgoland. H-E-L-G-O-L-A-N-D. It's where I think Niels Bohr's like had to go because he had, you know, pulmonary stuff going on. I forget the details, but it's an island, name of an island. So anyway, so and but this puts us in a place where we're not saying that everything is just mind and mind as you know opposite of world, but we are saying that there's that there is a ontological like this. The claim here is that we don't have evidence for everything being the same kind, different kind of stuff. That there's no reason to make that assertion. The real question then becomes, well, what kind of stuff is it? And how is this relationality working? Okay? Those are big, big questions. And moreover, like, how would you know that if, like, the only way we can think is dualistically, then how are you going to investigate that stuff? There is no outside. There's, there's no, you can't go somewhere else where there's a, where, like, the idea here is that it's, you know, where are you going to go? You're already outside. You're seeing mind or whatever. You're seeing that you, you know, it's all that. So, your con, you know, I mean, right now we've already agreed that the actual content of your perception is really mind stuff, quote unquote. But now we're saying that stuff is actually the same kind of stuff as what's causing those appearances in your consciousness. So, um, so, and then we can examine that and we like find electrons and we can do all kinds of things because it exhibits causal regularity and everything. But that's all the product of this fundamental distortion which is like that stuff is different than what's in here. So all of that science is actually like you know, defective in that way. Yet no access. No, we have full access. Full access. But we don't have a method. We don't know, we don't have a, because conceptual, the way we like do analysis is intrinsically dualistic. We don't have a method to do non-dual analysis. To do non-dual science, so to speak. Right? We don't have a way of doing that. No, all every there's only okay. There's everything. So the idea here, everything here is everything. You're so when you see colors, what is what the thing that you're seeing? What's it made out of? The color itself. Now you see my hand. It's it's all it's what it's consciousness. It's this is in consciousness. 
So this is made of consciousness. But your visual object is made of whatever consciousness is, it's made of that. Okay? But we're not saying that this is in your, that, you know, like you're just creating everything in your own mind. We're saying that because we know, like, they're called regular causal interactions into subjectivity. You can't just make stuff happen. So there is some kind of causal, reg, regular causality which is producing these images in your consciousness. You don't have direct access to that causal stuff. You have, because what you get is the effects of that stuff. And, and okay, not wait, wait, just, just listen, okay? So this is made out of, what you're seeing is made out of consciousness stuff, mind stuff. And now the claim is that whatever is causing it is the same kind of stuff. It's not different. The, the mind stuff and matter stuff is the wrong model. It's a new kind of, it's a different kind of stuff, which is neither mind nor matter. And it's all the same. That's the only kind of stuff there is. So there's no mind stuff. There's just this other no, stuff. mind stuff is conceptualized as different than the kind of stuff that's causing the images. So if we understand mind in that way, then we have to let go of mind stuff too. Is that, is that nihilistic? Not really. Why would it be nihilistic? No, there's stuff. You don't know what the stuff is. It's not. The history of our of our like kind of philosophical attempts have been to either turn everything into the mind or turn everything into matter, and this is saying both of those are wrong, and there's not nothing. We don't know what that third option is, and in, in a certain way, we don't even have like a we don't even know how to know that third option. But we may get there. It was a matter of, without getting into dualism and subject object, it was a matter of perspective. When you're outside of that stuff, it looks like matter. Yeah. When you're inside of that stuff, it looks, it looks like, like mind. mind. Yeah. Yeah, that's, yeah, that works. Same thing. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, the problem with that is that it, it's, it's, is that it, so the general tendency in Western civilization yeah. has been, you know, and people blame Descartes, but it's really long before Descartes. It's like Descartes had this idea of the res extensa and the res cogitans. Like, there's kind of, basically, there's mind stuff and there's matter, yeah. right? And the claim here is that, no, that's just a product of our, the way our consciousness operates, but there's not, there isn't like a, you know, matter is how we, dis, how we conceptualize our interactions with this causal whatever it is. But why and that's, that's what we call matter. And when we make certain kinds of assumptions and use certain methods, that's what we come up with. Right? You know, and so it's, so there are not, there are a handful of scientists who are kind of open to this. Many scientists are, uh, in my experience, one of the big stumbling blocks is they believe that mathematical objects are real things. Math- mathematical abstractions are real things. Yeah, more real than anything else. And when you, you know, so that kind of, you know, 
That well, not exactly. It it can you there I have working with one scientist who is a panpsychist. He just think I he I think he kinda thinks the mind or like, you know, the universal consciousness is basically math. <laughs> so, you know, but anyway. Yeah. Yes. Yes, so such yes, so suchness is seeing so in, back in here suchness is the perfect nature which is emptiness but it's it's specifically the emptiness the fact that this flow of experience is empty of subject object duality it's not that other kind of No. Well, oh yeah. Okay, so yes. Yes. So let's go now. So what is, when that says something remember back here, something remains, right? Something remains. You know, Neo sees, this is a very imperfect metaphor, but Neo sees this. That's what remains. What is that stuff? What is that? Right? That's, that's kind of the question. Like, what is that? What remains? Or another way to put it, how are you knowing experience itself as empty as subject duality? How do you know that? You know the answer to this question. Yes, again. How? So you're a, you're a yogacara yogi. You are experiencing the flow of experience in the perfect form. Empty of subject duality. So you're having an experience that is empty of subject duality. How do you know that? How are you knowing? How is knowing occurring in that experience? Awareness. What kind of an awareness? Huh? Well, it's in the moment. What kind of awareness? Can it be a dualistic awareness? No. No. It has to be non What kind of non-dual awareness have we been talking about? Oh, you yes, good. Prakasha. Luminosity i.e. reflexive awareness. So that's how you know emptiness, which is not really an... Emptiness isn't an object, it's just knowing experience in a different way. Some people would say that's direct experience. Well, also... Unmitigated, unconstructed, unfabricated experience. Well, I think seeing seeing an object dualistically is also direct in a way. It's just that it's got that defect in it. I'm not sure I, I'm not sure I, you, some people maybe call I'm not sure I go there exactly. But I, I think I know that based, like it's pure experience, quote, quote unquote. You could say that. So is that making sense? Okay. You know, can I just say, is emptiness the idea, I'm just trying to get, what's the idea that drives that the nature, that the content of perception and the cause of perception ought to be made of the same stuff? Is emptiness the idea that so it is that when we are, basically, if we come to the, the conclusion philosophically and then the experience that the actual nature of our experience is non-dual, that the duality in it is uh, false, then that means that if the duality were accurate, just like I said before with the picture, You'd say, oh, that's a fa- it's, the picture is not the tanka, but it looks like the t- it's a good representation. If it has a bunch of you know, distortions in it, 
then it's a, it's a, you may still see it's a tanka, but it's not a good picture. If duality is not a distortion, then it's faithfully representing the fact that the stuff that caused that perception is really out there. Different kind of stuff. If it is a distortion, then that's telling you that the, the difference it's telling you is not there. There isn't really a difference. Okay? So it all has to be the same kind of stuff. It doesn't mean it's one thing, because it's clearly not one thing. Right? So this does not mean Buddha stew, you know, like it's all just a Buddha stew, all mixed together. Then No, it's like, it's like Indra's web. It's not an equation. Yeah. Yeah, right. So that's, yeah. So one, there are two different kinds of negation. Okay? One of them is called a, a implicative negation. The famous example is Pino Devadattaha Divasena Bhunkte. Fat Devadatta doesn't eat during the day, meaning. Fat? That's a person's name. Devadatta does not eat during the day, which means. It's at night, right? So it, the negation implies something. Then there's a non-affirming negation. It is not the case that there is such a thing as Martians. Huh. Might be wrong, but who knows? But right? So it's not like affirming. When you read that, you don't think, "Oh, you mean there are Jovians or Venusians, or there's some other kind of aliens?" It doesn't imply any of that, right? So. Nagarjuna is generally understood to be using this kind of negation for his version of emptiness. If you ask, what is a thing really? The answer is, there is not anything that a thing is really. Period. Right? If you want to say what it is conventionally, it's interdependent. But if you want to ask what is there, ultimately, the answer is, you, there is that you can't ask that question. It's just, No. Not even nothing. Why not even nothing? Because nothing only exists in relation to something. Nothing is not really nothing. On and of itself. But the uh, Yogacara is understood to be an implicative negation. Because you're negating duality, but affirming experience, non-dual experience. Experience remains. So what's the problem with that? Maybe not that much, but that can become a new place to hang your metaphysical hat. So what happens as the tradition progresses, so so what happens as as the tradition, so this is what Yogacara does, right? What is negated duality, what remains non-dual experience, but as the tradition progresses, People combine Yogacara with Madhyamaka, and that's what leads to the traditions that I've been talking about that go to Tibet. And what they do is they say that moment of experience does not exist. You can't find it. it you can't specify what its identity is. Right? In other words, it's empty in the Madhyamaka sense also. If you try to absolutize that experience, then you're making a mistake again. The non-dual experience itself. You say, that ultimately exists, you're making a mistake. You have, you have to say, you, what you have to say, it doesn't ultimately exist, it doesn't ultimately non-exist, 
It doesn't both exist and not exist. It doesn't neither exist or not exist. No, well, it's not unknowable. It's not knowable as an object. But, but as like emptiness is unknowable that we can we don't have the apparatus to understand it. We don't have the apparatus. No, we can we can exist, but we can't. We can have an experience in which that sense of there being either dualism or some kind of fixed nature. We can have that kind of an experience, but it's not an experience that you can describe as real or unreal or uh, you know, even good or bad. It is beyond, it's not describable in linguistic terms. It's knowable, but it's not describable. Yeah, in a way, you might want to even say it's not knowable if knowing means I know an object. Right. It's not, it's not knowable if that's what knowing means. Yes. <laughs> okay, so so this is from one perspective the mind is empty in that it is ultimately devoid of subjectic duality which is the fundamental expression of ignorance from another perspective the mind is not empty rather it is luminous and it has, always has the nature of mere experience remember luminosity? just the presenting so the Tibetan traditions are going to use Madhyamaka to try to prevent this from being absolutized, but they will affirm exactly this. What they call seltong zungjuk, the complete integration of emptiness and luminosity. So the experience of the ultimate is that. Is luminosity something that you encounter in a meditative state? You're you're encountering luminosity right now. Do you know do you, do you know why? Yeah, sure. Yes. You know why you're having why you know how how it is that you're experiencing luminosity because you're conscious. So it's and, not something you work towards through a meditative practice and then take it into daily life. It is because it's but it's more it's not, it's less like you have to do something. It's more like you have to undo something. So here's the question that I asked you this morning: How? So, what's luminosity? It's just the fact of being conscious, right? Raise your hand if you're conscious. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, so, are you sure you're conscious? You could be, like, maybe we're plugged into the Matrix, or maybe we're, like, you know, in some simulation, or Descartes' demon is controlling our brains, or whatever it is. But we're sure we're conscious, right? Yeah. So that's like the cogito of Descartes, in a way. It's in a way that's true, right? Not exactly, but the cogito assumes a kind of dualism, but still. Uh, So we're conscious. How do you know you're conscious? You just know. Yeah, right. How do you know? What's the mechanism of knowing you're conscious? Do you have to make an effort to know you're conscious? You don't, right? You don't have to try. So how do you know you're conscious? Reflexive. You are reflexively. It's just, it's, that's the presenting. That's what consciousness is. 
presenting. Well, it depends. It depends. Yeah, it depends. And there are claims. There are claims about. There are. Yeah. <laughs> yes. There you go. For once, just for once, there's actually claims about consciousness persisting even in deep sleep. There's a paper by Evan Thompson and a few other people. I forget. That's about that. A scientific paper, actually. But uh, in any case, um, so, sorry? You mean Francisco Varela? Yeah, he, he talked a little bit about, yeah, persistence, a little bit. Uh, so, so, but here's, so when we're saying that we're conscious, right, and we're knowing that effortlessly, that means we're knowing it reflexively and non-dually, but here's another thing. So let's suppose, okay, setting aside like what kind of stuff is there? How do we know that there's kind of stuff? One thing's for sure is that our, uh, uh, on this account at least, is that if we really want to understand what's the nature of reality, since our access to reality is through consciousness, that means what we really, everything that we're, what we mean by reality is that is what's presented in consciousness. Mm-hmm. Then we have models of the causality and so on. Before. Do you need awareness? Awareness, consciousness, either one, really, in this case. So, what's presented there, that's what's real for us. Tables, chairs, and so on. So, really, all of that is just conscious experiences, right? So, that means if we, if Remember, how do we eliminate ignorance? We see what's really going on. To see what something really is, is to see what it is in its nature. Right? So if you want to say, you know, if you're simple, like high school chemistry, what's water? If it's steam, if it's solid as ice, if it's liquid, what is it? H2O. Right? So what is it? What is there about consciousness that is true of every moment of con- uh, every moment of experience. What is it? What's what is it? What? Luminous. It's the luminosity and the emptiness. So that would be the claim. Like empty luminosity is the nature of the mind. Empty luminosity is the nature of the mind. So, if in a sense our way, our, our gateway to understanding reality is through the mind itself, then understanding the nature of the mind is clearly critical, and the claim is the nature of the mind is empty luminosity. Empty of subject object duality and empty of a fixed nature. Like you can't put your finger on it. What is it? What is it? What is it? What is it? And at the same time, it is dynamic. It can appear as they say in Mahmudra. It can appear as anything at all. It's got this dynamic interrelational capacity. So it's got this dynamic feature. So in the Dzogchen tradition, they say its nature is empty. It's or its essence is empty. In essence, it's empty. Its nature is luminosity. 
And its expression is this dynamic capacity. And the word they use to describe the dynamic capacity is compassion. Interestingly. Although it's hard, it's, people often don't translate it that way because it's also like, it all, that's what's also presenting all the bad stuff. Like, you know, the suffering in the world. All, everything we're experiencing, the good and the bad, is this expression of an empty, luminous, dynamic mind, consciousness, whatever word you want to use, awareness. Uh, but the, for me, the use of that term compassion is saying the key like to you know, the transformation is that dynamism, the connectivity. And that's maybe also a way of trying to understand like, the kind of stuff it is. That is a way is a term that's used to describe that dynamic uh, uh, relationality or capacity. Uh, as so, really, the Dzogchen tradition really talked about sort of three ways of understanding the nature of the mind: that it's, in essence, empty, in its nature luminous, and then in its expression, this dynamic capacity. And then they'll use the word compassion. As a way, just uh, say they call that compassion. But so it's a, if this, if yeah. This is the nature of the mind. Yeah. And my, I'm assuming that understanding this simply intellectually is not, not enough. Safe, not enough. So what's the roadmap practice otherwise to having the experience? Have ex- experience? Well, we've been doing that a little bit. Through so non-duality. It is definitely through cultivating non-duality. And there are going to be different kinds of roadmaps. Uh, we have been working with some of the practice, some of the practices. This is from Dharma Kirti, right? So the nature of the mind is actually, it's, it's luminous. The defilements, the kleshas, and so on are not essential. You can eliminate ignorance even though ignorance has, is, for our purposes, innate, beginningless defects, they can be eliminated from the mind, right? So that's a very important claim. The defilements are adventitious. That means they're temporary. They're not essential. And this also then leads to the idea that the, some, the nature of the mind itself is actually what... So the big question is, especially if the goal is for everyone to become a Buddha... Well, like, how do you do that if you're totally not a Buddha? And the answer is you're not totally not a Buddha. There's an aspect of you that already is the same as a Buddha mind. And that's going to be basically this. Yeah, the luminous, empty, dynamically interrelational mind. Okay? Yes, so compassion, so then compassion now is, is really like, in a sense, you could say the, that dynamic connectivity, when it is, uh, when it is um, driven by ignorance, creates samsara. The empty luminous mind with its dynamic connectivity, driven by ignorance, creates samsara, 
driven by compassion, freed of ignorance, creates nirvana. And here's the thing. You could, some people will definitely say, the dynamic connect, the, the empty, luminous, dynamic connect, dynamic mind itself with ignorance creates samsara. If you take ignorance away, the compassion is already there. So then it just creates its, it creates the, the Buddha, the Buddha field on without, like you don't have to even have to kind of do anything to make the compassion come out. So you will find people say that, and then they'll also give you compassion practices to do. <laughs> so it's like, just to be safe, <laughs> just in case. So that rhetoric, uh, which I call the innatist rhetoric, where you say like, you know, the most extreme, we're going to stop momentarily, but the, uh, so this is the continuity, right? Okay, so you can have a kind of scale what we call, these are Christian theological terms, but there's negative or positive. The most, the only, some, some schools will say the only thing that's the same about your mind and the Buddha mind is that it's not ultimately real. Which is not a lot of, not, all, not saying a lot. Some people will say not only is your mind, you know, luminous, cognizant, dynamically the same as a Buddha mind, but you already have inside of you a bump on your head. You have like all the marks and signs. Yeah, I know. That's what Joseph Goldson said to me two days ago when I was talking to him about this. I got a bump on my head. Should I go to the doctor? <laughs> he really did, yeah. It's hilarious. And uh say, can you look at it? You know, it's like, and uh, and all you know the hands, the wheels on the you know, all that you have all that already, right? So most traditions in Tibet are in the middle, including uh, for the most part this Chakzok tradition. But they will. There are a number of people who will lean here in the sense that it's more than emptiness because it's also luminosity. But then they'll also, even though you try to avoid absolutizing essentializing luminosity. It's like, it's luminosity. And then she will sort of basically, sometimes even directly say, and it's compassion. The Dalai Lama would, would, if you ask him, uh, he's from a tradition that is, uh, he's originally trained in a tradition that's all the way here. Who said truth was truth? Well, the, you just said it's luminous, it's empty, yes. and it's compassionate. Yeah. So, in the end, the end of the road is always that. Shouldn't it be? Those are words. Yeah. Sorry, dude. No, 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 I'm, I'm being... But, so, so, this is the... So, here's the very interesting thing. I was at a... Uh, and then we should stop. But uh, I was at a... At a Dharma, at a, His Holiness, when I was at Emory, was giving a teaching on Mahamudra, this non-dual style. And although he's from the Galupa tradition, which is very uh, apophatic in this regard, like you know, it's just emptiness. That's the only thing that's continuous. Not even luminosity can rightly be said to be essential, an ultimate feature of the nature of the mind, right? 
and so that that is saying that you know that's where you're saying that emptiness is a non-implicative negation. Remember, it's like there just are no Martians. It's not pate, fat Devadatta eats during the uh, does not eat during the day, right? It doesn't imply anything. And so he's giving this talk, and they, his tradition does absorb some of the Mahamudra practices, but they interpret it in this much more kind of apophatic way. But he has started for some decades now practicing in the other traditions too. He's very unusual that way. And his translator, he's a friend of mine, was they had me up on the stage there kind of to help translate, but I don't know, just because I look good, I don't know what. But uh, So I'm, 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 yeah, must have been that, yeah. So I'm there, like, you know, and, the, and uh, his, he says, in Tibetan, he says, well, actually, when you're speaking philosophically, it's best to say that the ultimate nature of the mind is just emptiness. But when you're speaking from the standpoint of of contemplative experience and it's good and don't speak only from one standpoint you have to speak from both standpoints on the cushion and off the cushion so when you're speaking on the cushion then it's better to say that the experience is an affirming negation that the mind is empty and luminous and his translator who was very trained, very strongly trained in this tradition, literally could not translate that sentence. I had to like he translated the first part. You know, oh, when you're speaking philosophically, you should say that it's a non-affirming negation. The mind ultimately is just emptiness. That's it. And then he stopped. And then and the Dalai Lama, who speaks English, you know, kind of looked at him. And I went, you know, he said. <laughs> I had to actually literally get him to say it. And afterward, he came up to me and said, did you hear what he said? I can't believe it. (laughs) So what that's telling you is that, which is, I think, a very useful thing here, is that when we're trying to like use philosophy and conceptual systems to understand this stuff, there is a way in which it's useful to not affirm too much. Because especially if you're like me and you start affirming things, you start clinging to them. But then experientially, right, when we're actually trying to describe experience, then we may start to see that things like luminosity, connectivity, even compassion, are good descriptions. But we don't carry those, so like we talk about experience, we say, this is how it unfolds in experience, in that frame of reference. And part of the idea here is that these are not like, you know, reality is about our frame of reference. So in one frame of reference, it's useful to speak one way. In another frame of reference, we speak another way. Is that totally unsatisfying? Or? Okay. Yes. We, sh- we, should, we should probably stop. Can we? You want, is it a short thing? Yes, it's very short. Okay. Yeah. It's very important. It's yeah. Very important. That's that's right. 
Yeah, it's very, it's very impolite. Very impolite to do that, and it's also like a gesture of domination, actually, to touch people on the top of the head. But when you, but yeah, we don't get that. But it's very in many Asian cultures. But then in Tibetan culture, if you are going to get a blessing, it's right on. No, they do actually put their hand directly on the top of the head for the blessing. Yeah, in the in in Tibet they do. Yeah, when you take refuge, they cut a piece of your hair. Yeah. Yes, but if you get a blessing, but sometimes they don't use a hand; they'll use like a little stick instead, if there are a lot of people. But uh, it's mostly like the hand, you know, on top. Sometimes they grab your head and they do something called utuk, when they've touched the foreheads, which you also do with your friends. Grab by the shoulder and touch. Very nice, beautiful gesture. Okay, so uh, let's, uh, let's, let's head into the Dharma Hall by 4.30. I, the, I am having dinner with Joseph and Sharon tonight. You can, you can stop that. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.